Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Today we are privileged to be among white men and white women, <laughs> such as yourselves. Real warriors for the real America, the America that our ancestors fought and died for. Topher Grace there as Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke in a clip from director Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansman. Set in the early 70s, Klansman tells the true story of a black detective who successfully infiltrated a Colorado chapter of the KKK. This week on the show, our review of Black Klansman, along with the film spotting top five Spike Lee shots. That and more. It's gotta be the shoes. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. A doozy of an assignment we gave ourselves this week, Josh. Somehow the two dollies fit here in the studio. Amazing. So we're going to be able to pull off our top five a bit later in the show. Spike Lee shots. Of course, he's made over 20 features, another 10 or so feature length documentaries, some stand up specials and stage shows. A lot to choose from. Yeah, it's that latter stuff that really gets me. I'm doing all right on the features, have even seen most of the docs, but man, has he been busy when you actually look at that filmography. Thankfully, I think we're pretty familiar with the stuff that we're going to want to pull from when it comes to shots, those theatrical fiction features. Yeah, let's hope so. One thing Spike Lee has never directed, Massacre Theater. (laughs) We'll perform a scene badly and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. Also, we might just get to some feedback on a recent top five struggling adolescence. It was a tie-in with Eighth Grade and my interview with the writer-director of that film, Bo Burnham. But first, winner of the Grand Prix at this year's Cannes Film Festival, Black Klansman has put Spike Lee back on the map, with some claiming he's returned to do the right thing for him. That's high praise. Let's find out if Adam and I add to it. The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. When's the last time they let a rookie lead an investigation? Oh, that's right. Never. <laughs> okay. Become his friend. Let's get invited back. So what kind of stuff you guys do? Cross burdens, marches. This is fixing to be a big year for us. You ask too many questions. You undercover or something? Looking back at Spike Lee's career from the vantage point of 2018, Adam, it seems that the filmmaker has almost always been ahead of the moment. The vital conversations that have been taking place in the public square these past few years concerning police abuse of African-Americans, governmental betrayal of low-income neighborhoods, and representations of minorities in the media, these are all the things that have been tackled in Spike Lee joints like Do the Right Thing, When the Levees Broke, 
and Bamboozled. These movies were ahead of their time in the sense that they named the injustices many of us didn't want to admit were taking place in the time we were living in. In the last few years, though, you could say that Lee has dialed back on the relevance. Two of his most recent features were, to my mind, unsuccessful remakes, Old Boy and The Sweet Blood of Jesus. And while I did place Chirac on my 2015 top 10 list, both for its cheeky musical form and its social consciousness, others felt it was an off-tone attempt to address the issue of urban gun violence. Now Lee offers Black Klansmen a historically-based comedy-slash-drama about a 1979 police investigation of the Ku Klux Klan, an investigation led by a black detective, played by John David Washington, who posed on the phone as a Klan recruit. Black Klansman comes out after a few years of heightened racial tension in the United States, related, among other things, to multiple cases of police misconduct, the Flint water scandal, and the election of Donald Trump, an event lauded by none other than former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke, who was played in the film by Topher Grace. In a sense, then, for better or for worse, the moment has caught up with Spike Lee. We've been having the discussions his movies have always hoped to foment. What I wonder then, Adam, is if Spike Lee is still up to the moment. Does Black Klansman offer something vital and necessary? Can we once again describe Spike Lee that way? Yeah, he's absolutely up to the moment. Matt Zoller Seitz, who everybody should be following on Twitter if you aren't already, had a great tweet over the weekend. He said, one of the great consistent sources of excitement in my movie-going life has been watching Spike Lee get written off as no longer relevant, only to come roaring back with something that everyone has to have an opinion on. It happens every five to seven years. And Matt as usual, kind of nails it. He says, yes, of course, Spike Lee is back, while also acknowledging that it isn't every project, nor is that realistic, where he's producing something so vital, your word, that not only can it not be dismissed, it has to be reckoned with. And Black Klansman is a movie that has to be reckoned with about a subject that, unfortunately, we seem doomed hopelessly to reckon with. And one thing I was grateful for as I watched this film and then started really prepping for this week's top five, I got to rectify a blind spot. I went back and watched Spike Lee's debut feature, She's Gotta Have It. And I noticed a couple connections, and I'm sure there are many, to that film and Spike's work as a whole, and certainly Black Klansmen. You recognize right from the beginning with She's Gotta Have It, this discourse on the notion of liberation. It's a question Black Klansman poses multiple times, and the love interest of Ron Stallworth, the detective Patrice, she's the leader of the Colorado State Black Student Union, she asks Ron directly, at least once, maybe multiple times, if he is for the liberation of black people. And she's got to have it as a movie that's solely a black story. I don't remember any white characters that are featured in it. And it's not directly about race relations like Black Klansman or so many of his films, but this question of liberation actually does dominate the movie, though it's more about the individual than the group. Nola Darling, she has that line at the end of the film, it's really about control. My body, my mind. Who was going to own it, them or me? I'm not a one-man woman, bottom line. What's our problem with race at its core but a problem of control, right? Body and mind. Who has the power to oppress, to restrict you? In Spike Lee's films, it's often the expectations and fears of white society oppressing black society, or it's similar expectations and fears coming from the black community from within, restricting its individuals. And, of course, often it's both. Nola Darling, I think about Jungle Fever, Bamboozled, and Black Klansmen, again, certainly. But the other thing I really connected with and connected back to She's Gotta Have It with Black Klansmen is this melding of history and fiction. And 
Spike's always been a topical filmmaker. Think about the way Malcolm X opens, scanning through that movie. I had forgotten that it opens with Rodney King footage. Didn't mm-hmm. Malcolm X come out in 92? That beating had just happened in March 1991. He felt, obviously, the need to work that into his movie. And She's Gotta Have It, a movie that's less political, but it opens with black and white footage, as the movie is, of course, except for that one fantasy sequence, with these still photos of the neighborhood and it's lots of kids, but we see this full range of black faces and I don't think they're characters in the movie. They're just actual people. It's photographs. So from literally the beginning, from his first film, he was grounding the narrative, which does incorporate some documentary elements in the actual. He's saying this is our story and throughout his filmography, whether it's based on real events and biographies or their documentaries about real events or their complete works of fiction, his work is almost always grounded in an authentic experience. It's one, even if we're not the community that's specifically represented on screen, it's one that we can connect with. It's one that we are provoked by and react to and want to reckon with. And I certainly felt the way I did watching do the right thing for the first time, watching Malcolm X, watching so many of his other films, watching Black Klansman. Yeah, I think he really is at the top of his form here as well, which is absolutely saying something. And that use of documentary footage, historical footage that you talk about that he does do throughout his career is because he spent much of his career deconstructing history, questioning the history that has been given and taken for granted and looking at it from another perspective, pointing out what is false about that. Oh, yeah. And that's absolutely what's going on in Black Klansman. We'll talk about it some more. But what is so amusing to me about it, and it took a little while while watching the film to key into this, is how much he is using, to borrow a phrase from Sorry to Bother You, earlier film from this summer, he's using his white voice here. Absolutely. For subversive purposes, I was shocked at how much of Black Klansman is given over to the espousing of white supremacist rhetoric. Whether we get it when Ron Stallworth is on the phone pretending to be this recruit, and we definitely have to talk about John David Washington's performance there, and he's spouting all this stuff off, whether it's the Klan people on the other end of the line who are agreeing with him, whether it's the meetings we go to, or whether it's the initiation ceremony that we are stuck in. Mm -hmm. I want to say the majority of this movie is given to hate speech. We hear hate speech. And yet what Lee does is he filters it either through Ron Stallworth. So there's a joke there when we see it coming out of that face, or he filters it through his own cinematic heightened style that we've come to associate with black consciousness cinema. So Mm -hmm. it's just, there's like an intellectual dissonance going on there. And it's not just making these Klansmen look like fools or dupes. It's more sophisticated than that. It's using both cinematic and vocal tricks to expose, to make this a farce, to really expose how patently false, how blatantly idiotic this ideology is. When you see it portrayed this way, it can be nothing but that. It, it's it's essentially portraying that sort of thinking in whiteface. He, he's playing yeah. this complete joke on it that you can laugh at, even though you're going to catch that laugh in your throat when you think about the reality of it. I think this film does take the Klan very seriously at the same time mm-hmm. um, as, as it should, as a threat, as something that needs to be addressed in this day and age. But his primary weapon is to deflate it with this specific form of satire that is brazen 
And to be able to pull that off and make it work throughout the film, I think really is a triumph. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I want to get into so much more of what you talked about in detail. But I wanted to go back real quick to that notion of the authentic experience. And even if it's a foreign one to us as viewers, this is a film, like so many of his films, that draws on our collective consciousness. And it's a consciousness sometimes informed by or even created by cinema. Specifically, that's a big part of this film as well. And I think we will probably get into some more talk about that. But here we have a story that is already based on real people and events. And Spike, for lack of a better word, goes into full didactic mode. I've seen that word thrown out a little bit on Twitter and elsewhere. I don't mean it in a pejorative way. He's making the parallels to past history and sadly our very recent history explicitly clear. And I know some do take issue with that mode. We do typically prefer our messages in art to be more subtle or to not be messages at all. But I was thinking about what you said about superhero movies last week with The Dark Knight and appreciating them when they are grown up. And there's a lot of nuance to that. And we could unpack that, though not on this show. You did a great job of it with The Dark Knight. They don't have to be all that way. But when they get it this right, when the very justified anger that permeates this story is as carefully and artfully devised as it is, and that didacticism is as earned as it is here. Plus, as we were talking about, Spike is a filmmaker having earned it with a foundation he's built for decades. Then I'm all for being provoked in that way. I'm all for having certain buttons pushed. And the only time I think the didacticism fails is when it isn't quite artful enough, when it isn't as blatant as it actually should be. That's when sometimes it feels false. I wonder how you felt about it. There was one conversation in this film that was the only one that felt as if he needed it in there only to kind of have a good laugh that really wasn't that funny in the end. It's the sergeant, not the police chief, but the sergeant who is sympathetic to Stallworth's cause, who's helping him and Adam Driver, Flip Zimmerman, out with their case. And they kind of walk through the police station. And they have a conversation where the sergeant enlightens him about the political objectives of someone like David Duke and how he's softening the image of the Klan to make it more palatable. And the scene ends with Ron saying, naively, we, as viewers now know, that someone like David Duke could never be president of the United States. And it does basically become this punchline where we get to go, ha ha, yeah. just wait. And I would have been more forgiving of it, honestly, if it was delivered more like a punchline and not actually treated as seriously as it is. But the whole scene does, in retrospect, seem as if it was there to lead up to making that connection. One that Spike Lee makes undeniably clear and much more potently later in the film. Yeah, I think that scene doesn't quite work because it's not didactic enough. It's exactly. not spike yeah. enough. It's framed as this conversation between the two guys. If somehow that point had been made while someone, we'll get into this when we get to our top five Spike Lee shots, yeah. someone looking at the camera, screaming something at us in a weird, bizarre way, that would have been more artful in the Spike Lee sense than mm -hmm. the scene we get there. But here's an example. How about the way this movie opens? We should talk about that. The first thing we get here, well, first we get a scene from Gone with the Wind, the yes. famous crane shot mm -hmm. of the Confederate soldiers lying wounded. So there's an example of using historical sure. footage, right, to provide this sort of context. Then we cut to Alec Baldwin as this out of his mind, it looks like 50s <laughs> yes. era. He, he maybe is like a Klan recruiter, but he's giving this speech in front of a training video, like a Super 8 mm -hmm. video. So it's projected on his face and on the wall behind him. Again, a two to three minute scene of him just espousing this hateful 
rhetoric, but the way Lee shoots it in his style is that it's edited frequently. We get this extreme color, use of color going on, and Baldwin's performance. The guy literally chokes on his own words. Mm -hmm. So that's just another example of what I was talking about, Lee employing this white voice, but undercutting it at the same time. And that is in your face. That is didactic, but it's also electric, it's jarring, it's disturbing, and it's funny. Mm -hmm. And those are the elements that Lee can bring to didacticism that other filmmakers can't. Yeah, for sure. That is a case where right from the beginning, you recognize the way he's undercutting that authority visually, the stopping and starting of the edits, that throat clearing, the performance aspect of it, the way Baldwin's character is changing line readings for effect. It just does always make you aware that this is a construct. This is a fabrication. Everything about what he is spinning is, in fact, false. And something else I noticed, and we'll maybe get into this more as well, he's never shown framed in a position of power. I noticed that right from the very beginning. And it's similar with David Duke. There's one exception. But otherwise, every time we see that conversation between Stallworth and Duke and we cut between them— He's always shot with these kind of canted angles. He's never presented in sort of a symmetrical composition where he's right in the middle of the frame as if he is holding any kind of power. So even though he is using so much of that hate speech rhetoric, it is subverted constantly yeah, in visuals. a really pretty subtle way at times and sometimes in a very blatant way. Yep. And uh, I think of the scenes of Duke at his desk in this crappy office, the camera well away from him. So you can see his surroundings. Mm-hmm. He's all alone. And he looks like just a sad guy in somebody's basement. Now, again, you could say the, the reality paneling and the, yeah. the paneling. Yeah. The, the reality is more dangerous than that. Right. And this is, uh, you know, I, I just want to repeat, this is something that Black Klansman makes clear. It's not just here to laugh off the Klan, because once Ron's investigation goes in earnest, they discover there's actually a terrorist plot at work here. And so real lives are in danger and that all of this doofusness has you know, real world repercussions. Yes. So that's something the movie recognizes and I think really brings home to us in what may be considered another didactic element. And that is the final images of the film, which mm-hmm. I don't know if we want to get into now or maybe do a little spoiler talk at the end. Yeah, maybe. It doesn't re- really reveal anything. No. But um, there's something powerful about having it presented to you without having any expectations. I agree. It. Let's focus a little more on Spike when it sounds like we would both say is at his didactic best in this film. Others may take issue with that. And it's the way he cross cuts between two ceremonies that are going on this clan initiation rally that you mentioned before, but also this black activist meeting of this black student union group. It's at a house and they have Harry Belafonte playing a black activist who is recounting some pretty horrific tales from his own past. And actually we got a great voicemail on this from one of our listeners that can help set up the dialogue about that. Hey, Josh and Adam, this is Josh Taylor, a.k.a. The Forgetful Film Critic in Dallas, Texas. I know you're looking at Black Klansman this week, and I just saw it on Friday. I wanted to get an early reaction in. I actually just finished writing my review, which will go up the same day your episode post for it. And this has got to be the best film of the year for me so far. I was moved and entertained and disturbed and disgusted. Spike Lee is just a master filmmaker, and this is one of the best things he's ever done, as far as I'm concerned. I wanted to talk about uh, one moment in the movie. I'm sure you guys being as astute as you are 
saw this instantly. It didn't hit me until I was actually sitting down to write my review. It's a scene that comes a little over halfway through the movie when Lee juxtaposes the ceremony of the Klansmen inducting the new members with Harry Belafonte's character recalling the lynching he witnessed in 1916. At the time when I was watching the movie, I thought it was a brilliant takedown of the movie Birth of a Nation when Belafonte's character is talking about how that movie helped a resurgence in the KKK as the KKK members are actually watching Birth of a Nation and enjoying it so much. And I thought that was brilliant on its own. But then it struck me as I was sitting here writing that Lee and his editor, Barry Alexander Brown, structured the sequence exactly like the most famous cross-cutting sequence from Birth of a Nation is structured. He uses the kind of exact same rhythm and style to really take all the air out of that movie. And I thought it was a brilliant, subtle use of editing. It was an exciting realization for me, and I just wanted to talk about it. So thanks, guys. Keep up the good work and take care. So, of course, Josh is absolutely correct. That connection between The Birth of a Nation and this film in terms of not only the footage that we see, but in the way we get that cross-cutting. Spike is very clearly commenting on that. And I know our friend Matt Singer wrote an article about it as well. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I know from Twitter, he wrote an article on Screen Crush called How Spike Lee Used Black Klansmen to Get Revenge on One of the Most Racist Movies Ever Made. And I'm guessing that he expounds on what Josh was saying, the brilliant way Spike mimics that groundbreaking cross-cutting that Birth of a Nation is credited with, so effectively using in order to build tension and suspense and cutting between those parallel events. And I did find the way he does that here to be quite stirring, thrilling even at times. And again, it's totally didactic. They watch Birth of a Nation, as I said, and cheer it on. The clan members do. Spike isn't trying to be sneaky here at all. And I saw another tweet over the weekend that I thought was really provocative. Josh, it's from at Inessentials, who is a film writer, critic, author. I actually don't really know much about who he or she is. I just know they're at Inessentials on Twitter and I follow them. And They tweeted this, two tweets, Spike Lee working at 80% of his aesthetic potential so that he can speak very slowly and very loudly for the people in the back row. Some devastating, fascinating moments, but the conflicting and maybe even counterproductive whole is less than its parts. E.g., one of the movie's potentially powerful scenes is two cross-cut speeches. It works well until the very end when a white power chant is matched by a black power chant, which creates an equivalency where Lee presumably doesn't want equivalency. So that's that's what a good critic should do. Taking a scene that I took completely at face value as powerful and a brilliant formal choice by the director and made me rethink it. This notion of the equivalency of a Klan meeting chanting white power crosscut with the black activist meeting chanting black power. How did you react to it? So this gets us into something that's interesting about Spike Lee and him being considered a didactic filmmaker. I think I'm going to touch on this a little bit in our top five, but often he's considered to be preaching and you don't realize that he's kind of preaching from a bunch of different angles Mm -hmm. at once. Uh, This is a guy I believe just from the movies I've seen is more interested in stirring the pot and getting people to respond and think about all the different aspects that whatever topic he's addressing has in it. And that scene does exactly that Mm -hmm. because, yeah, that did cross my mind. Here I am thinking, of course, the Klan initiation ceremony is deeply disturbing. And our sympathies are totally with the student group, Mm -hmm. especially as we hear this story that the Belafonte character is sharing. And then those things come together. And I had that thought, well, wait a minute now. 
What 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 are the what is mm-hmm. being said here by these two groups? And part of me does recognize what white power means to that group of white men is something very, very different. different than what black power means to those students. That is the power. The way I took it, the power they're speaking of is the power to be considered human mm-hmm. and equal, and white power is. Supremacy. Yeah. Supremacy. So there's that basic reality to it. But honestly, I think the reason Lee doesn't want to make that clear, wants to leave that up to us, is so that we have these sort of arguments and yeah. so that we can ask ourselves, we'll, talk about it. well, what does mm-hmm. black power mean? And what sort of support should that be given? And and those are all hard questions to wrestle with that he leaves in all his didacticism, he leaves gray areas for. Yeah. No, that's a great way to look at it. I guess – I maybe took a little more of a literal approach in responding. I had two specific thoughts. One is that even if those scenes are presented in an equivalent way technically, which is undeniable, you can't remove the moments from their larger cultural context. This is what you said. Saying that a group of people chanting black power is exactly the same as a group of white people chanting white power is just as false as when some people try to argue these days that black lives matter and white or all lives matter are the same thing. They're not, and any argument as such is rhetorical nonsense. But you do also have to consider the context within the movie itself. And I touched on this a little bit earlier. There are many differences in the two meetings, but chief among them The only evidence we see of white people being victims of oppression in this movie or evidence of black aggression and brutality is within the movie, The Birth of a Nation. It's created by D.W. Griffith. Think about how many times we hear those are characters characters in blackface in that film. That's true. And there are all these other times where Ron or Adam Driver's character is talking to the other members of the Klan, and they all have these stories with no details or specific evidence whatsoever of black people doing harm to them or threatening them in some way. Compare that to the examples from the black student union meeting where Belafonte is playing Jerome Turner, from what I've gathered, a fictional character or someone invented for the movie. But all the events he's describing and the pictures so I was we're seeing. Say, there's photographic evidence provided absolutely. by the film. Again. Jesse Washington, the lynching of him in Waco, Texas, it's absolutely 100% real. And so the basis for those white power chants is predicated on all these fictional causes and made up grievances. But the basis for the black power chants is based on actual historical atrocities committed against them. There's nothing equal about these matching sequences with that in mind. And I do think that part of the boldness of this movie, I think Matt Singer is probably on to something. I can't wait to dive into that because it's more than just revenge, though. It's an absolute repudiation of it's a negation of the birth of a nation. And I think maybe Spike does want to have this film hopefully have the type of long lasting cultural impact that birth of a nation had for the negative. And that's why we do ultimately get the footage we get at the end of this movie, tying it to recent events, and it's completely justified. Well, that's why it's vital to go back to that word. So we should also throw out there that another phrase is given as much time in this film as black power or white power, and that's all power to all the people, which is often said by Laura Harrier, who plays Patrice. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's just another element Spike Lee throws into the pot, sure. right? So as we're talking about these bravura sequences, I want to get to one that's kind of the opposite of the black power, white power, which is very tense, angry, loud. And this comes maybe a little bit ironically during a speech that 
at times gets tense, angry, oh, man. and loud. The student union has yeah. brought in Kwame Ture, played by Corey Hawkins, and he's talking about a lot Formerly of Formerly Stokely Carmichael. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. He's talking about a lot of these issues and uh, how these students should respond. And he goes off at one point to pause and just speak about the physical beauty of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about facial features, specific, and all of a sudden- We've been seeing before this shots of the crowd. Some reaction scene. shots, but, more you know, conventional. Conventional yeah. reaction shots. All of a sudden, we get these, they're almost um, portraiture yeah. triptychs where mm-hmm. three faces are against a black background, subtly lit, beautifully lit, and we're hearing Therese's words mm-hmm. and seeing these faces, these gorgeous portraits. And it's an amazing moment of, um, you know, so much harsh language, so many loud laughs in this movie. But here we get just a gorgeous moment of quiet. It's mm-hmm. it is one of my honorable mentions for top five for sure. these shots. And we should probably note the cinematographer who did this with Lee is Chase Irvin. It's beautiful. It really is. And like I think we will get to certainly with our favorite Spike Lee shots, it's one, as you indicated, that is formally brilliant and catches your attention, but also is grounded within what we're seeing on screen. It supports what we're watching unfold and does help fulfill one of the larger messages of the movie. It isn't just for the sake of the shot itself. And as I recall, they're not even still portraits. Sometimes the the characters are moving, the camera is moving closer. Sometimes within it, it gives it this kind of mystical feel. It's otherworldly in a way because it's not against that backdrop of the stage. We're clearly doing something that is completely artificial. It is that construct again, and it's a standout sequence in this film. Yeah, they're floating in a a metaphysical space, and uh, yeah, it's it's really something. I think we'll get to some more of that talk again as we get into the top five. I haven't thought this all through yet, but I want to throw it out there, and other people maybe can run with it, but we were talking about the use of cinema, the references to cinema or popular culture and imagery here, and this whole idea of liberation and narratives. And and the power is in really who controls that narrative. You said it earlier, those opening shots of Gone with the Wind, whatever those quote-unquote educational videos that Alec Baldwin's character is making. I keep thinking about the shot at one point of Adam Driver sitting next to John David Washington. And if you Google this movie, it's one of the first images that come up. They're two cops and they're just kind of sitting on a table next to each other. And they're having actually a very thoughtful conversation where Driver's character is pointing out that he really has kind of taken his Jewishness for granted his whole life and what this case is doing to him and the things it's making him think about. And it's a shot that makes them look like partners out of a TV cop show yeah like they're they're there are a lot of to, visual references kinda, to that yeah they're, the they're, 70s they're kind of shoulder show. to shoulder it looks like the right. 70s cop moment and then he even sort of gets and there's direct talk about shaft and representation of black people in popular culture at the time coffee and cleopatra jones and of course yes richard roundtree and ron o'neill and superfly and i don't know if it was completely deliberate or not but Spike gives John David Washington here a shaft moment in the car where he is rushing to get somewhere in this very urgent, tense moment. And he gets to do the squeal around a corner, just like one of those cops or detectives would. And how about, I don't think we're spoiling anything here, the shot at the end that we get that's the famous Spike shot. We're going to talk so much about it later in the show. The double dolly shot, the floating shot, Mm -hmm. the way it's employed here, it's Patrice and it's. Ron Stallworth, 
And the way they are both holding guns and they're floating but <laughs> with some urgency towards this window, it's its own riff in a way. It struck me anyway as Shaft and like coffee. They're like two yeah. cops going to the window. So he's clearly drawing on, again, that collective consciousness, which is so informed by cinema and other forms of popular culture. Yeah, it's like a black exploitation movie poster come to life when they start floating towards you. It's, it's, it's another great moment. We should say Adam Driver. So he's playing the detective who's brought in on this because at a certain point in the investigation, yeah. somebody's going to have to show up as Ron. <laughs> and be white. <laughs> and be white. And I think Driver is really good. I think he the is. scenes where he goes to those meetings are full of some real tension. Yeah. I mean, that things get scary there, especially when some of them start sniffing around what his heritage is, even mm -hmm. though he has white skin. Um, but on the flip side of that, we have the scenes of Ron on the phone, which are, they're just pure comedy. And I really like the performance here from Washington, who I didn't realize till after the fact <laughs> is Denzel Washington's yeah. son. Even though I brought it up a few I, months ago here on the show. I somehow, sometimes I don't listen I, when you talk on I the know. show. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he's on HBO's Ballers. He has a credit in Malcolm X, so obviously much younger than. Mm -hmm. um, he's got a really delightful, dry sense of humor yeah. in this yeah. part that I think works. He kind of he, he's playing it straight. Yeah. I mean, he's like Lakeith Stanfield on the phone and sorry to bother you yeah. adopting no, that without voice. a doubt. You can't help but think about that. But you can see his smirk as well that he's got while he's on the phone. And what's crucial is he has that smirk when he has to deal with his fellow white officers because yep. he's facing a lot of casual racism mm -hmm. in the office as the first black hire for the Colorado Springs Police Department. A little touch that I love is he tries to keep it, keep his cool. <laughs> the karate but, move? Yeah. Oh, I know. I love <laughs> it. It's too, if it's too much for him, he waits till they, <laughs> till they leave, go, finds a quiet corner and just does some karate. Yeah, turns into That's Bruce another, Lee. Yeah, kind of a nice 70s reference too. So yeah, I just I just thought uh I thought it was a really deft performance it for is. someone who's, you know, relatively inexperienced in comparison to the the burden that this movie puts on him. Yeah. Well, unlike you, I did know going in and maybe informed by that or obviously informed by that I heard his dad the whole movie. Yeah, that's what he you said. He does not. I, I'm telling you, try it again with that knowledge, Josh, because for me, it's unmistakable. It's not even so much that the the timbre of their voice, to use a musical term, is exactly the same. He has a different voice. He has a higher pitched voice than Denzel does. But something about the cadence and just their manner of speaking, whether it's interviews I've seen or it's this movie – it was almost like I was in a time machine if I closed my eyes and I was watching a Spike Lee movie with Denzel Washington in it. This is the job. What's your problem? That's my problem. For you, it's a crusade. For me, it's a job. It's not personal, nor should it be. Why haven't you bought into this? Why should I? Because you're Jewish, brother. The so-called chosen people. You've been passing for a wasp. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, cherry pie, hot dog, white boy. It wasn't distracting to me, but it was something I was aware of. The Maybe whole time. there's some of that in there that I will detect. But the funny thing about this performance is what is Ron? Stallworth's real voice mm -hmm. because he's putting on a voice when he's talking to his peers at the police department. It's different than the white voice that he's putting on on the phone mm -hmm. for the clan. It's a little bit different when he goes to the rally. When he goes to the rally, yeah. he's undercover. And so he's trying to play this politically conscious guy that we get a sense is not really his own background. We don't learn a lot about his background, no, but he seems to be a guy who's not that involved in the civil rights mm -hmm 
movement. And Which so, I do love. I love that the movie just starts, forgets the exposition. It's yeah. just him walking into the police station. Yeah, and, we and can yet, fill in blanks. But we, can, but we should also say that I do think this pays a lot of attention to and I'm talking about the same thing when it comes to the voice, the identity crisis that he's undergoing mm-hmm. because Patrice pushes back on him. She doesn't even know that he's undercover and she has no love for the cops. And so she pushes back on him and starts getting him thinking, am I, you know, one of the things you see going through his head is just by joining this police force, am I using quote unquote, my white voice? Right. Yeah. And so it's this identity crisis that I think does come through in this film. It's a very personal element while it's also tackling all of these bigger ideas that we've been talking about. And I love the subtle moments of rebellion, the things he does take a stance on. He knows there are certain battles he's simply not going to be able to win. But if he can get a little jab in at the chief when he keeps calling Kwame Ture Stokely Carmichael, he's going to point out that no, his name's Kwame Ture. Right. And there are a bunch of moments just like that. So there's a lot more we could probably talk about with this film, and all of them would be more important than just going through some of the performances, perhaps. But when I brought up that John David Washington was, in fact, Denzel Washington's son, something I learned when I was preparing for our summer movie preview, the question I posed was whether or not Topher Grace could pull off playing this sniveling but also menacing David Duke character. And I did. I don't know what I was looking at last night. I saw an image side by side of the real David Duke at this time and Topher Grace and man, it's dead on. It really is. They, They got the look down perfectly. What did you think of Grace's performance? So he's, I think it nicely balances this thing I've been talking about where the movie mostly undercuts white supremacist ideology through humor, subversive humor, um, but also recognizes that there's real danger here. I think maybe the Topher Grace performance leans a little bit towards the humor side where he mostly comes across as an evil doofus. It, you yeah. know, I mean, he's he's at the top of the chain of the doofuses, <laughs> but, right. but he's still a member. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, it's amusing for how Lee wants those scenes to work. So it wasn't distracting to me. It's definitely more of the movie's comedic element. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I had a sense, even though I don't think Grace pushes the comedy too far, I don't think he overplays the character, but there were moments where I still felt like he was putting on something. And I wish I hadn't felt that way, but at the same time, that is the essence of David Duke's character, as we learn in this movie and as some of us just know from probably following current events. He did make that transition. He's still trying to make that transition into being accepted by mainstream culture. He is playing a character. He's a horrible racist, but he's not trying to come off in public like a horrible racist. He's always playing a character himself. So maybe in that sense, Grace was getting that right. And I do have to mention that while I was watching this film the whole time going, man, that doesn't look like Denzel, but it sounds just like him. I'm also looking at another guy going, man, he kind of looks like Steve Buscemi, but oh, I'm yeah. sure he isn't, that but he sounds me, like him. Through me too. <laughs> His brother, Michael. I didn't even know he had a brother. Didn't know he acted. He's one of the cops, minor role in this film, but he's pretty good as well. Yeah, yeah, he's good. And it took me till I got out of the movie to figure that one out as well. All right, before we wrap up, uh, let's talk a little, not really spoiler, but I do want to get your read on the images, the footage that we're left with mm-hmm. and how you thought that worked with overall in the film. So maybe if listeners are to this point and 
want to jump ahead a little bit and rejoin us Mm -hmm. in, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute or so. (laughs) Um, But so basically what Spike Lee does here is, again, bring more historical footage here, this time from the 2017 Charlottesville rally. And specifically, the sequence of the car Mm -hmm. that plowed into counter protesters, I guess they wouldn't have been protesters, and killed a young woman. And yeah, they're higher. It's just hard to watch on its face, no matter what context you bring it to. I've actually never watched all of that footage. I found it so troubling. That's a really good point. I've avoided. Often you can make that choice and you can't hear. No. I mean, it's it's probably not going to come as a surprise that I see this as just another piece of that artful didacticism that uh, Lee uses throughout his career and is using here. I think it's crucial to balance all the humor, uh, to make everything we've been laughing at, even though it's right to have laughed at it and Mm -hmm. he wanted us to laugh at it, to make it at the end of all this stick in our throat and to make, goes back to what we were talking about with the the real world connection is that this is something that, you know, yeah, white supremacy is this ludicrous refuge for small, horrible minds. But you know what? The reality is it's alive and it's all too welcome yeah. in the U.S. right now. I don't think he did it at all just for this reason. But I really appreciate the fact that the story of Ron Stallworth ends for the most part about as happily as it can end. And that's why we get that amazing moment. I love that double dolly shot, the shaft and coffee moment when they're floating towards the window, because even though we've heard a little bit about some of the tension in their relationship, otherwise things are going very well. They've been successful in the investigation. And that moment, looking out that window and seeing that cross burning reinforces what we all know to be true, that just because they came out okay with this one case does not mean for a second that racism is gone in this world. And then Spike doubles down on that by giving us that Charlottesville footage and saying that all for the most part ended right in this world, but all is not right in the world as we currently live in it. And I mean, what was really striking to me and so troubling to me, Josh, was actually some of those lines at the beginning of the film that Alec Baldwin's character is saying they could have been copied and pasted out of the transcript of some of Laura Ingram's recent remarks about immigration and not recognizing American culture anymore. He made this movie long before she said that. Obviously, those types of remarks have been out in the media for decades. They're also a shade away from a Trump rally speech. They are. I mean, you just put one word here or there and you've got it. I have no problem with the didacticism and Spike Lee, as I said, provoking us in that way at the end of this movie. I think it's crucial that he does end that way for the movie he gave us. Black Klansman is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at films. We're going to take an even deeper dive into Spike Lee's career later in the show when we get to the film spotting top five, Spike Lee shots. First, though, we'll have some very shallow acting with Massacre Theater. Stay with us. Feels so good to be a Brooklyn Dodger. Uh-huh. What's happening to rerun and Roger? I think I seen him wearing Timberlands and running down the block from Dwayne, and Dwayne had a clock. Cause he be selling rock for the Partridge family, and Ruben Kincaid drops a 300 E, and he be pimping Chrissy from Three's Company. Plus he stuck Mr. T for all the jewelry. This is a 70s thing from the days when kids didn't act so crazy. Brooklyn. Never 
1.2 million. The Nick you're dating is Nick Young? Yeah, you guys know them or something? Hells yeah. They're just the biggest developers in all of Singapore. Damn, Rachel. It's like the Asian Bachelor. I know I'll never forget, Josh, when I found out you were Josh Larson of the Southwest Suburban. Larson's total game changer. <laughs> Try not to throw that around too often. <laughs> That's the trailer for Crazy Rich Asians, which opens wide this coming Wednesday. It's the first Hollywood studio film in 25 years to feature an all-Asian cast, the last The Joy Luck Club. Our friend Dave Chen from the Slash Filmcast, he tweeted something that is a sort of a reflection of that reality. He said, I watched Crazy Rich Asians tonight. I've been watching movies for decades and reviewing them for many years. Until tonight, I've never seen a film in theaters that felt like it captured how wonderful, diverse, transcendent, lonely, and isolating the Asian American experience is. So really makes Crazy Rich Asians sound intriguing, Mm -hmm. something that wasn't on my radar earlier in the year, but I'm glad we get a chance to check it out. Unfortunately, this does mean we're not going to review the Happy Time Murders. All that puppetry talk last week on the show, and we're just ditching your beloved Muppets, Josh. I know. It kind of hurts. I can't believe you're letting this happen. It's out of our hands. They're not screening it, it until the Wednesday night before opening. Right. Doesn't work with our recording schedule. We already schedule. need to tape the show, unfortunately. So, I don't know. And yes, doubly painful. We're not going to be able to do a puppet-related top five then. No, can we, we're not. Can we tie in Crazy Rich Asians and top five puppet movies? <laughs> Maybe we'll have to check with Dave Chan. No one will on notice, that. right? Yeah, no, I'm sure not. Happy Time Murders. I'm already penciling it in, though, next week for a Larson Recommends. That's the <sighs> slam dunk of all slam dunks. Uh, well, we'll see, because, you know, sometimes when they screen them this late, it means they don't want you to see it. That's a good point. Now, we will need a top five to tie in with Crazy Rich Asians, and you can help suggest one. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.com. Net or send us an mp3 file. You can also leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744. I don't know much about this movie. Read a little bit, seen some of these tweets. Otherwise, haven't watched a trailer or read any reviews. So I don't know what a good top five would be. Sam is suggesting, our wonderful producer, that it is, it seems, essentially a romantic comedy at its core. And maybe we should do some kind of rom-com related top five something we really haven't done yeah i was gonna say there's probably room to do that maybe so so look forward to that or something else next week here on film spotting over at our website filmspotting.net you can click on events and you can almost always find passes available for advanced screenings or run of engagement passes we currently have some passes available for operation finale it's a new thriller that stars ben kingsley and oscar isaac that screening is monday august 27th here in chicago again visit filmspotting.net slash events if you want to enter to see that movie all right with that business out of the way, it is now time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Chester Copperpot! Don't you guys see? Don't you realize? He was a pro! He never made it this far. Look how far we've come. We've got a chance. Chance at what, Mikey? Getting killed? Look, if we keep going, someone's really gonna get hurt. Maybe dead. Besides, we gotta get to the police. Maybe Chunk already got to the police. Maybe Chunk is dead. Don't say that. Never say that. Goonies never say die. I'm not a goonie. I wanna go home. That's Carrie Green as Andy with Sean Astin's Mikey in 1985's The Goonies. It was written by Chris Columbus, based on a story by Steven Spielberg, directed by Richard Donner. That massacre was part of episode 689, which also featured Adam's conversation with eighth grade director Bo Burnham, along with film spotting top five struggling movie 
adolescence. We heard from Curry Powell in Louisville, Kentucky, The Goonies, where adolescent angst is worked out amidst pirate treasure, dead bodies, baby Ruth sharing, first kisses in the dark, Ma Fratelli, and of course, booby traps. That's the way I went through it. Aaron Teachman in D.C. said the big connection, of course, is that your top five is with struggling adolescents, and the Goonies are, of course, struggling to grow up and to hold on to their homes. Other connections? At least some of those kids must be in or close to eighth grade, the film you reviewed in that episode. Corey Feldman was also a real-life struggling adolescent, if we want to go there. Martha Plimpton also starred in Parenthood, a film about struggling folks of all ages, not the least the adolescents. And, of course, Joe Pantoliano starred in Goonies, though he was not in the scene you massacred, just like he starred in but wasn't in the scene you used to intro the top five. The all-time great, don't be embarrassed, it's in the Pantheon, Midnight Run. How about that? Well done, Aaron. Nick Galen in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, wrote in, The kids in the Goonies have their struggles threefold compared to normal adolescents. Yes, they have to deal with the regular growing up situations of school and finding one's place in the world, but then they have to struggle with the fact that their families are about to lose their homes, and on top of that, the three killers who were chasing the same treasure. The film dives deeper into the struggles of adolescents with the fact that the kids involved are divided into two age groups, showing that adolescence itself and the struggles that accompany it are not set at distinct ages in one's own life and may continue as one becomes a bit older. The second connection is between the Goonies and Avengers Infinity War, which Bo Burnham mentioned as the last film he saw in theaters. That's true. Part of the film Spotting Five. As everyone knows or should know, Josh Brolin stars in both films, with Goonies being Brolin's first official film. Nice. Here's Lyle from Melbourne, Australia. He says it's similar weather to Astoria, which... I believe is where Goonies is set. My five-year-old son just chose this for his weekly DVD night with dad, so it was fresh in my mind. After not seeing it myself for more than 30 years, it did surprise me what you could include in a PG-rated film in the 80s. I have to blame and or credit Chunk for my son's new habit of saying shit all the time. He is using the word in correct context, though. I was also alarmed to find myself getting a little dusty here and there with certain lines like sloth love Chunk and you are my best invention. The power of nostalgia, huh? Love the show, guys. The power of nostalgia, indeed. Now, Astoria is in the same state where Andrew Howell in Lake Oswego hails from. Josh, that state would be? Sometimes it's Oregon. Sometimes it's Oregon. No, it's always Oregon. Well, it depends what (laughs) mood you're in. Tonight? I guess so. Oregon. I heard from our listeners via some Massacre Theater feedback that you snuck in an Oregon on the show with Katie Reif here. I step away. Hey, that's the mood I was in. (laughs) You just run wild. Andrew writes, while I believe I would have gotten the reference, my wife Sarah instantly got it. The Rudy reference made it much easier. We did sub in that Sean Astin character for the one he plays in The Goonies, although Samwise would have been more appropriate given your recent review of Lord of the Rings. This movie never resonated with me, but was one of my wife's favorites as a kid. She points out that she's much younger than me, two years, I'm 45 now, and that it appealed to the younger generation. I'm feeling like Michael Phillips with Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I don't think I'm that wrong. As Lloyd Benson said to Potato Man Dan Quail, I've seen Raiders, sir, and Goonies is no Raiders. This is true. It is true. It's very true. And I know some listeners hate it when I say this. I've brought it up a couple times over the years. Goonies was never, ever one of those 80s movies like Ghostbusters or Back to the Future or even the John Hughes stuff like The Breakfast Club, Revenge of the Nerds, all those films, Weird Science. Crawl. I mean, Crawl, of course, (laughs) that I loved and watched obsessively. Goonies never resonated with me like that. Yeah. um, I don't know why. It did with me. Too much adventure for me or something. Yeah, I think that was probably it. It did with me does not hold up as well as I would like. I I still like it overall. I let nostalgia carry me away, but I really need that nostalgia when it comes to the Goonies. Yeah. Now, what was also snuck in there that we 
did not anticipate at the time because we had not planned our Dark Knight Sacred Cow review back when we recorded this massacre theater. But I did sneak in Oswald Cobblepot instead of Chester Copperpot is the real character's name. Oswald Cobblepot, the one it sounded like to me, is, of course, the Penguin's real name from Batman and Richard Donner, the director, a nice tease for The Dark Knight, and all of our talk about Superman the movie, which he also directed. Somehow we knew that was all coming. We did. <laughs> we did, yes. Reach into the pretty brimming film spotting have the power of nostalgia and pick out this week's winner. I'm going to go with Ale Avila here. I think you got Flugerville, it. Texas. Flugerville, Texas. All right. With a P, it's silent. Thanks for that yeah, tip. You're welcome. I mean, you had it, obviously. Ale is a longtime listener of the show. Congratulations. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Martin, look at me. I am looking at you. Now look at me the way I'm looking at you. Put it in your eyes. You're mine, asshole, without saying it. How about this? What are you telling me? That you sleepy? That you want to go to bed? We move on now to the latest installment of Massacre Theater, one where a character's name is mentioned, a single reference, and we will once again be changing that. Oswald Cobblepot? (laughs) We should just go with Oswald all the time, probably. We will let listeners figure out whether or not our choice is, in fact, a clue. We are also going to eliminate all of the awkward pauses in this scene. Probably just makes for better radio. Yeah. This would be about three times as long. (laughs) Yeah. It works on screen. Probably doesn't work here. And here's my other clue. And I don't think listeners really need it for this scene, but this is total fantasy fulfillment for the both of us, regardless of which character we're playing. I think it's fair to say this is just pure fantasy for both of us getting to embody these two actors. Okay, that's fair, though. I will say in your case, Uh it's probably not the part you would want to embody of this actor's career. No, there are many others. That would be your Best fantasy. Yes. Okay, that's enough. Okay. Enough clues. Let's get into it. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Josh, there's no way you're ready to be this actor. No. But we're going to hear how you do. Are you ready? Yeah. And action. Get some chow in you before we go to the office. My dollar. Ah, thank you, sir. But I ate. Fine. Don't. It's nice here. May I read my paper? I'm sorry, sir. I. Thank you. You know what? I'll get some to eat. No, hell no, you won't. You F that up. I'm trying to read my paper. Please shut up. I sure won't mind not roasting in a hot black and white all summer. Tell me a story, Jesse. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. And And scene. scene. Nowhere close. No, no. You probably should have gone with a funny voice approach. You could have done it as Oswald Cobblepot. (laughs) Might, I would have liked might to have, have been heard better. that, Josh. Might have been better. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. I can't judge you. I took the easier performance. The deadline is Monday, August 27th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Just who might you be? What are you doing here? I'm Dorsey Gale. Dorothy Gale. What's happened to the scarecrow? The Gnome King took the scarecrow and all the emeralds back to his mountain and turned everyone else to stone. 
So I wanted to get into a little bit of listener feedback. We don't often get the chance to do this, but we do so frequently get great feedback on our top fives. And you heard some references to eighth grade and our top five struggling adolescents in movies thought it made sense to share some comments from listeners like Brandon Bayer in Westchester, Ohio, who says, I don't know if you all have any love for the 1985 Return to Oz. This mostly exists in my mind as nightmare nostalgia, but at its center is Feruza Balk's Dorothy. Following her first fantastical trip to Oz, she is having trouble staying grounded in reality and is shipped off for shock treatments. In my memory, the resolution to this film after visiting a much more terrifying Oz this time around is that she decided to let go of her imagination and flights of fantasy and return to the real world. Have you all seen this film? Any thoughts? Did spend much of the 80s watching The Goonies, spent none of the 80s watching (laughs) Return to Oz. Sorry, Brandon. No, but I'm guessing there are many people out there, Brandon, who appreciate hearing that one come up. Here's a note from Joran. He's in McKinney, Texas. I was so ready to send a scathing email if Don Wiener went unmentioned in your top five struggling adolescents. Needless to say, I was happy to hear that Josh is a fan. For some reason, I became obsessed with that movie for a short time, almost wearing out my VHS cassette of it. It also reminds me of an experience that haunts me to this day. I was a music major in college around the same time I was discovering movies that were off the beaten path. On a trip with my college jazz band, I insisted that we watch Welcome to the Dollhouse on the monitors throughout our bus. What a good time Joran is. <laughs> I gradually noticed that my fellow students weren't really tuning in to Todd Solon's cringeworthy mixture of humor and darkness, and I was completely embarrassed by the end of the movie. No laughter or discussion, just quizzical faces. Afterwards, my jazz band director approached me asking, Do you think that's funny, son? I somewhat fixed the situation by putting on the Jim Carrey movie Liar Liar after that. I do still love the movie, but that experience permanently made me wary of sharing my favorite movies with others. Man, I remember watching some terrible movies on bus trips in high school. Robin Hood, that terrible Kevin Costner one, and someone put on once The Golden Child, which actually... I kind of had a soft spot for for yeah, some reason that Eddie Murphy all film. Way better choices than Welcome to the Dollhouse for, <laughs> for a bus setting. trip. <laughs> yes, without a doubt. Okay. Bob Hovey in Columbus, Georgia writes in Riley from Inside Out, one of my honorable mentions, definitely isn't too young for the list. Josh, she's not 10. Perhaps you recall the very last line in the film. I don't. Now you will. She has great new friends, a great new house. Things couldn't be better. After all, Riley's 12 now. What could happen? Okay, but it's the end of the film. <laughs> it is. Loved your consideration and discussion of Let the Right One In, Bob says. Beautiful film and oh, that ending. I wish I'd had the opportunity to write and suggest a few films earlier, but for what it's worth, one of my picks for the list might have been Saoirse Ronan's Hannah. Seeing her so beautifully balanced, her ruthless assassin with a confused teen seeing the world for the first time was such an amazing thing to witness, even though the whole premise is only slightly less improbable than that of an adolescent vampire. I do really like that Joe Wright film, Hannah. Some other candidates that Bob threw out. I've always had a soft spot for the film Lucas. That's that's a good 80s flick there. For the movie's sure. humor and happy ending notwithstanding, it does have a bittersweet take on the struggles of the stereotypical nerdy outsider, a personality type I embodied with painful intimacy too many years ago to mention. The 2004 Japanese film Nobody Knows about a group of four children who are basically raising themselves after being abandoned by their mother. Lord of the Flies, the 63 version, of course, struggling adolescence is a bit of an understatement for this one. I was about 11 when I saw this one back in the 60s. Since I was the short kid that always got picked on, I took the film very much to heart and had nightmares for weeks. Finally, my life as a dog and walkabout rewarding film on so many levels, themes of nature, survival, sexuality, and cultural incompatibility are all seen through the lens of two very different adolescents. All great stuff. Some of 
those films I have not seen from Bob. One more note here from Martin Davey. He's in, I'm going to go with Pollux Hill, UK. Pollux Hill. Pollux Hill, okay. I was a bit surprised that you didn't manage at least an honorable mention for the 2016 Swedish film Girls Lost. The girls may be a touch old for the topic, but they fit your criteria as girls with problems who then drink some strange plant essence and turn into boys with problems. Yeah. Stresses huh. the point that regardless of gender or place, sexuality, race, etc., the best of these films strike a chord within all of us. Speaking of films we haven't seen, in fact, I've never heard of Girls Lost. Me either. And that's why we turn to very smart listeners and cinephiles like Martin Davey and everyone else who wrote in. Thank you so much for contributing to that top five. All right, let's get back to the man of the hour, Spike Lee, with this week's film spotting top five, Spike Lee Shots. That's up next. Stay with us. Yeah, that's right. This cut goes out to all y'all that's been missing us for mad years. One love, yo. That's right, he's got game. E.E. 1998. If man is the father of the sun, is the center of the earth, in the middle of the universe, then why is his verse coming six times rehearsed? Don't freestyle much, but I write him like such. Word. Amongst the fiends controlled by the screens, what does it all mean, all this shit I'm seeing? <laughs> Human beings screaming vocal javelins, sign of a local nigga unraveling. Uh-huh. My wandering got my ass wondering. With crisis and all this crisis, hating Satan never knew what nice is. Check the papers, well I bet on ISIS. More than your eye can see and ears can hear. Year by year, all the sense disappears. Nonsense perseveres, prayers laced with fear. Beware, two triple O's. It might feel good, it might sound a little something. But damn the game, if it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game. Got game, they got game, he got game, it might feel good, it might sound But I'm here tonight to tell you that it is It is time for you to stop running away from being black. You're college students, right? Right on. You should think. It is time for you to understand that you, as the growing intellectuals of this country, that you must define beauty for black people. Now that's black power. Corey Hawkins there as Kwame Ture in a great scene from Spike Lee's Black Klansman, which we reviewed very favorably earlier in the show, talk very favorably about that specific scene and what you can't see from that clip is a great example of what the director himself calls a spikeism. We know that because we read the New York Times article, How Spike Lee Created Three Signature Visual Shots by Mikado Murphy, a writer and editor for the movie section of the New York Times, also a friend of the show. And a spikeism is, as Spike himself says, a heightened visual flourish that makes you take notice while moving the narrative forward. And they get into a couple other examples as well. That's the faces in the crowd scene, the floating down the street, the double dolly shot that we will probably cover in some detail during this list, his signature shot, his most signature shot, I think you could argue. And then a scene from Crooklyn and a use of technique that is not going to make either of our lists where he actually squeezes the frame. He's trying to heighten the sense of this character, Troy, from Brooklyn being a fish out of water, leaving bed going to this more affluent place in Virginia to stay with relatives and he shot the scenes with anamorphic lenses and then ran them in a normal aspect ratio and it confused the hell out of most people who saw it in the theaters at the time including me who saw it 
on DVD back in film school, actually, when I saw Crooklyn, but it makes the shots look, as the article says, elongated and odd. People actually complain so much that a lot of theaters had to put a note up. I thought something was going wrong with my TV when I watched it for <laughs> the first time in prep for this list, but it absolutely makes sense for what's going on in that sequence. So let's dive into some of these spikeisms. I suppose we could have called this list instead of top five Spike Lee shots, our top five spikeisms hard <laughs> to narrow it down to just five from such a rich body of work. How did you go about this task? It was incredibly hard. I had to use that construct that we fall back on from time to time where we say if aliens came to Earth and wanted to basically know what a Spike Lee movie looked like, what images would I show hmm. them? So I came away with a collage, really, that is by no means comprehensive. We couldn't even get close to it considering all the great stuff he's done. But I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And I'm going to start at number five with one from very early in his career. It is She's Got to Have It. And the shot is of Mars Blackman against the Brooklyn Bridge. I knew I wanted a shot that had Lee himself in it. It's not just that he has appeared in many of his films, not quite as much as of late, but it's more that his actual presence is representative of what I call his direct address cinema. In every one of Lee's films, you can feel him talking directly at you. That's why some people describe them as preachy. And that literally happens when he is there on the screen. So she's got to have it from 1986. It features probably the most famous character he played, Myers Blackman, who is one of the three boyfriends of the title character, Nola Darling. She's played by Tracy Camilla Johns. We meet Mars in a first-person address to the camera where he's given a not very politically correct account of his attraction to Nola. What about Nola, dog? What do you want to know? I thought she was a freak. You know, freaky-dicky. You asked why I like him to see her? It looked like a retard. I'm not crazy. The sex was death. Nola had the goods and she knew what to do. Look, all men want freaks. We just don't want them for a wife. So the shot is tight on Mars' face. So that his giant black framed glasses, they're, they're even more prominent. And he's leaning into the frame towards the camera to emphasize the character's insistence and the moment's insistence. Lee's working here with cinematographer Ernest R. Dickerson. They're using black and white. And they leave enough room in the left of the frame for the Brooklyn Bridge to make an appearance there. And I think this is key because throughout She's Gotta Have It, Lee frames his characters around Brooklyn architecture. And he's establishing early on that this is a neighborhood that's going to play an integral part in so many of his films. I heard from listener Ryan Morgan on Twitter. He's at Mr. Underscore Rymo, and he suggested Mars for a slightly different reason than this. The image of Mars in She's Gotta Have It, he said, for the pioneering way that Lee used the character to fund and promote both himself and his films through the use of the burgeoning hip-hop culture of the time. It was a genius way to get his films made and seen by wide audiences. So, of course, Ryan's referring to Mars' second career as a Nike spokesman alongside Michael Jordan. That's why I think he's maybe even more famous than Mookie, who Lee played in Do the Right Thing. So, for me, Lee's at the forefront. Of everything he makes, not a director who mm -hmm. hides in the background in any way. So I did want a shot with him on camera, went with She's Gotta Have It. Yeah, I love your approach. The aliens question is always a good one, though I think I not only thought about that practical function or impractical function as the case may be, but also shots that 
for me, some of the pleasure of watching his films. These are five films, certainly the top four, that I will always go back to as my Spike Lee favorites. And I thought about the different types of shots that I think should be eligible for a list like this. The floating dolly shots, the use of direct address to the camera, the dolly shots where he's doing something even more crazy and heightened than that floating one, and then shots that aren't about the camera movement and they're just about the imagery. They're just about the beauty of the shot itself. But that notion of purpose was always forefront in my mind. The form excites you, but okay, to what end is it employed? How does it inform the characters, the scenario? How does it affect our viewing experience and our understanding of what we're seeing beyond the coolness factor? And I'm going to start at number five with a film that I do think is a second tier Spike Lee movie, though I've only seen it once and I'd love to revisit it. It's Mo Better Blues starring Denzel Washington, and it's the trumpet practice scene. This is a film from 1990. Denzel stars as a jazz trumpeter named Bleak Gilliam. And this practice scene, this shot in particular, I chose because it's a variation on the double dolly floating shot. And I keep saying double dolly, Mikado in his conversation with Spike Lee, explains what that is. It's just like it sounds. Instead of the standard shot where you've got an actor in motion or standing still and the camera is moving towards them or past them or whatever the case may be, they're both on dollies. And that's what gives you that effect of them almost standing still but also in motion as everything changes around them. We get a variation on it here that I'll get into, but the scene also has the element of direct address that we see so often in Spike's work where characters are directly talking to the viewer, sometimes in almost a documentary fashion, sometimes not. Sometimes within a pure narrative, they are looking directly at the audience or talking directly to the audience and And this is a scene that takes place early in the film. Bleak is practicing at his place. We see him initially carefully preparing his trumpet. And this is a movie, Josh, Mo Better Blues, that opens with a scene set in Brooklyn in 1969 when Bleak, the trumpet player, is a young boy and he's practicing and a group of his friends come up and they ask him to come out and play baseball. And his mother says that, no, he's going to finish his trumpet lesson. And the dad is worried that He's not going to be the right type of boy, let's put it that way, and he should be out there playing ball with his buddies. The mom keeps him focused on his trumpet playing. He continues to play, and his friends go away. This scene begins with a shot of a scoreboard in his apartment. It's the Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he's wearing a baseball jersey in the shot to start. It comes off during the dolly shot, and he's preparing his trumpet just like a batter a glove. He's oiling it up and... It's obviously, or it seems to me pretty obvious, that Spike is trying to connect those two worlds. Now, as this more famous trumpet player, he gets to combine both those interests on his own terms. And we get a hard cut then to a close-up of Bleak holding his trumpet on his left side, and he's using his right hand just like he would be playing the trumpet. But it's just all air moves, basically, with his fingers. There's some music playing in the background, and he's essentially soloing over the top of it with his fingers and his voice, mimicking the sounds that his horn would make. The camera, unlike those floating dolly shots that move in a lateral fashion or move in a linear fashion, this one is actually circling around him in his apartment the whole time. The shot ends with one of his girlfriends ringing his door and he admonishes her for breaking up what she knows is his practice time. And I love this 
shot, Josh, because not only does it give us some of those elements that we see throughout his work, but it reinforces this notion that this is his time. It's his space completely. The apartment swirling behind him, it could be the moon. It could be anywhere in the universe. It doesn't matter. All that matters is the music, the notes, the choices he's making, and that all requires total obeisance. It's all about the craft and everything changes in the room while he is completely constant. He's singularly focused. And the whole movie is largely about how all those other intrusions, everything outside that circle makes everything so messy, friends, managers, rivals, women. And how does an artist like Bleak reconcile that? So maybe an underappreciated Spike Lee film, underappreciated a little bit by me, but I've always loved that shot. Another one that comes to us via director of photography, Ernest Dickerson. Yeah, creating that sense of private space is key there. And then putting us in it, right? Because yeah. it's it's almost like you're on a merry-go-round. Yep. The camera is spinning at the center of the merry-go-round, looking at him on the outer edge. And so we're with him as it moves around the room. And you're right. It just creates this unbreakable arena yeah. that we get to witness yeah. and be a part of. And actually, to that point, we almost have an intimate moment with him. Yeah. We get inside an intimacy with him that the other characters in his life don't really get to share. All right. My number four comes from a film that's maybe considered by many lower tier Spike Lee. It's not one of my favorites, but I was able to catch up with it for this list. And it does have an exquisite visual moment. The movie is Red Hook Summer, and the shot is of the eyes of the good Bishop Enoch. This is Lee's 2012 religious drama. It's about a 13-year-old boy from Atlanta spending the summer with his pastor grandfather in Brooklyn, Bishop Enoch, played by Clark Peters. So yeah, this isn't entirely successful. There's some pretty shaky performances from the young cast, but the moment I'm thinking of comes about two-thirds of the way through. It's just after there's been a dramatic Reveal, And I'm not going to get into that here in case there are listeners who haven't seen Red Hook Summer yet and want to check it out. Basically, the revelation results in this moment of crisis during a church service. Now, in response, Enoch, who's at the front of the church in his purple robe, he raises his face and hands to the ceiling and exhorts, beware of false prophets. Uh, We don't know at this point whether he's talking about himself or someone else. The shot begins above Enoch, looking down at him in close-up, and it does move. It pulls away slowly, but it's really that close-up where we notice that the reflection of the ceiling light panels are forming a cross in each one of his eyes. And this is really startling. It gives a demonic flair to religious iconography, and that does relate to some of the movie's concerns. Going back to your question of, okay, this is really cool, but what is it there for? Mm -hmm. Well, this is there to bring those two things together in an unsettling way. What's also really ingenious about this is the way Lee sets it up. I think this is the third church service scene we've gotten in the movie, but this one begins, the first thing we see is the camera looking up at that ceiling. And we notice for the first time that those flat light panels do indeed happen to form the shape of a cross. So 
We have that image in the back of our minds well before it appears in Enoch's eyes, which is maybe five, six minutes later. I also like this one because Lee calls back to it in Black Klansman, right? We get the burning crosses reflected in the eyes of the hooded Klan members mm-hmm. at one point. So Red Hook Summer, yeah, not one of my favorite Spike Lee films, but that visual flourish was striking enough to make my list. Yeah, one I definitely need to catch up with. And I should point out that you can find all of these picks over at filmspotting.net. We always list our top five choices there. Just go to filmspotting.net and click on list. You can't miss it. And whenever possible, we will also link those choices to scenes from the movie. In this case, we will link to the direct scenes that we are referencing. Unfortunately, we can only do that as the clips allow, as if this wasn't hard enough to go through all of his work and land on just five shots. But a lot of the moments that I think we were both looking for, you really had to go digging in the movies themselves. They're just not there on YouTube, not of decent quality. But the ones that we do have, for sure, we will link to them. And the other ones, maybe we can include the images. Yeah. For this one, I actually had to take a screenshot of the film because I was surprised. I thought there'd be more Spike Lee stuff out there in terms of the imagery. Yeah. My number four comes from a movie that I think was well-received at the time, but I feel like has only grown in estimation over the years. It's from 25th Hour, and it's the scene overlooking Ground Zero. One of the reasons I picked it is because of that D word again, didactic, right? You have two characters who the entire time they're conversing are standing right in front of a window overlooking the ruins of the two towers. It's Barry Pepper and Philip Seymour Hoffman, two friends of the main character, Monty Brogan, played by Ed Norton. He has one night left before he's going off to prison on drug charges, and he's going to spend it as wildly and with as much fun, ostensibly, as he can. His two friends want to show him a good time. His two buddies from, I believe, their childhood, they couldn't be more different as a trio of friends. And those two in particular, Barry Pepper playing the stock trader and Philip Seymour Hoffman, a teacher at kind of a snooty private school they get together at pepper's apartment and talk about the night and how they're going to approach it i tried josh to lay out some bullet points explaining why i appreciated this scene why i felt like it belonged on this list and then i discovered that our good friend and a great critic scott tobias wrote about this scene and wrote about this movie very astutely back at the dissolve in february 2015 25th hour was their movie of the week and he wrote an article called the ruins and reckoning of 25th hour i really cannot say it better here's scott on this particular scene and how it fits in within the construct of this film no one's story exists outside the context of where they live and to some degree 25th hour associates the wreckage of ground zero with the devastation its protagonist choices have wrought in his own life a more radical reading of 25th Hour would hold 9-11 as another consequence of bad choices, but at a minimum, Lee is doing the work of the documentarian he's always been. As with Paul Thomas Anderson in the San Fernando Valley or Steven Spielberg in suburbia, there's a history of New York built into Lee's films, even if they aren't explicitly about their locale. To ignore 9-11 so soon after it happened would be a dereliction of duty for Lee, because there's no way to account for life in the city without it. The way it happens to dovetail so beautifully with David Benioff's story makes the film that much more evocative and powerful. As it happens, 9-11 references take up a much smaller portion of 25th Hour than it might seem. The bulk of it is relegated to the mournful opening credit sequence, which assembles different views of the tribute and light art installation set to Terrence Blanchard's score, before pulling back to reveal the ghostly spotlights where the Twin Towers once stood. Later, there's a shot of the wanted dead or alive tabloid cover with Osama bin Laden scotch taped to a broker's door, and a scene where two old friends— 
disappear down at ground zero from a high-rise apartment and argue over conflicting news reports of polluted air. Bin Laden and al-Qaeda are also folded into a bilious monologue that comprehensively disses every racial and class stereotype in the city, a callback to a famous montage in Lee's Do the Right Thing. The aftermath of 9-11 is a fleeting, incidental concern to the day in the life of 25th Hour, but the tenor of life has shifted unmistakably, which is true of New York and of the country. Even unseen, it's a presence. And he lets that presence do all of that work in the scene. It's a five-minute take where the camera never moves. Spike Lee recognizes the power of the visual, the power we as viewers will apply to that background, everything that we will read into it and glean from it. And Scott really couldn't articulate it better. The DP of 25th Hour, Rodrigo Prieto, who shot Brokeback Mountain, Amores Peros, The Wolf of Wall Street, among other very good films. So I had two lists as I was going into preparation for making these lists. One was the Spike Lee films I have not seen yet. Yeah. And those were the priority. And here were the ones that I wanted to revisit. Mm. And 25th Hour was at the top of that because I did like it. Very much what you described. Liked it quite a bit when it came out. Um, but I know that people have talked about it in even grander terms mm-hmm. in the years since. And so I want to see you know, what, what I might have missed that first time. And I think it was some of that 9-11 stuff is trying to reconcile that with the story at hand and maybe mm-hmm. missing some of these other connections that Lee's making. So at some point, I will get back to 25th Hour. All right, my number three pick, Scott Reference, do the right thing there in his piece, and man, were there so many to pick from. From that film, Spike Lee's masterpiece, on my list of the top 10 films of all time, maybe I'll save some of the ones I considered for our honorable mentions. What I went with was perhaps the film's toughest shot, and that is of Radio Rahim falling to the ground after being murdered. So... We started our Black Klansman review talking about how throughout Spike Lee's career, he's been ahead, if not driving, the cultural conversation on race. And I think this shot is the best example of that. This comes after the confrontation between Danny Aiello Sal and Bill Nunn's radio Rahim in the pizzeria. That spills out into the streets. Police are called. Radio Rahim is put in a chokehold by one of the cops and then held in it long after he's been subdued and killed. Lee finishes this sequence with the camera on the ground looking up. And Radio Rahim's body is dropped, just like a bag of garbage, so that his face falls just in front of the lens. This panicked police officer you could see standing over him. And then Rahim's hand, which is wearing the love brass knuckles that we saw earlier in the film, falls forward toward the lens as well, kind of right next to his face. Every time I watch this, it's that composition that's compelling, but I'm also always suddenly shocked by that lifelessness, just the pure lifelessness that image captures. The fact that such a big life force, this guy has so suddenly and pointlessly Mm -hmm. been snuffed out. So obviously, you know, police misconduct against African-Americans was being called out before do the right thing. But Lee, you know, he put it on the big screen in a movie that broke through to mainstream America and, and really maddeningly foreshadowed the many, many cases we've seen since, especially in recent years. Uh, Do the Right Thing is a movie that has a lot of joy in it. There's a lot of loveliness. I think people forget that it ends on what is a really remarkable note of hope and reconciliation 
considering the context of mm-hmm. all of the other films in Lee's career. But despite all that, I do have to go with this moment of awfulness for this yeah. list. Yeah, no, that's a great choice. My number three Spike Lee shot comes from Malcolm X, and it's the Moonlight Clan ride. I want to thank Drew R. He's at Twin Cinema on Twitter for reminding me of this shot. And he called it Malcolm X's dark homage to E.T. And I don't know how honest or how genuine Drew is being there with that suggestion. I would love for someone to show me that I'm off base, but I'd pay good money to see or hear Spike Lee's response to someone suggesting that he was in any way, shape or form paying homage to E.T. with this shot. I'll get into it more, but the visual is of a very large full moon and these five clansmen on horses riding directly into it. And it does in some way kind of mimic the famous shot from E.T. of the bicycles riding in front of the moon. This one seemed so appropriate for this list too, Josh, considering that it was inspired by Black Klansmen, not just because of the obvious, the Klan connection. This is a scene early in the movie where we've gone from a freeze frame on red at the time, the young or younger Malcolm X, to a flashback of him in Nebraska, except it's actually before he was even born. His mother's pregnant with him, and the Klan comes out to their house to harass his father, who's a preacher and who's away. We hear the narration say they broke all the windows with their rifle butts before riding off into the night. They rode off into the moonlight just as suddenly as they'd come. So we have the clan elements, but you've also got, Josh, this incongruity, this conflict. I think you called it the intellectual dissonance, right, that Mm -hmm. is so prevalent in Black Klansmen and in other Spike Lee films. Here it is captured just in this single shot of these Klansmen riding in to the moonlight because There is that conflict between what we're seeing and how we see it. These five men on horses, they're wearing hoods and robes. They've just terrorized a pregnant woman and her young children. And as they do ride off into the moonlight, they look glorious. He's taken this awful moment and he's almost romanticized it, but romanticized it in the way someone who has no actual recollection of the scene might recall it especially if you're reflecting back on your childhood and perhaps idealizing your childhood, even as rough as these circumstances were, the way he shoots the family in the home reflects this romantic inclination too. a little bit. The windows glow with such a striking yellow hue. I think it's probably gas lanterns or something, but it's so warm and inviting inside. And on the outside, it actually almost burns a little too brightly. You know, it reminded me of speaking of Spielberg, The great scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when Barry is taken. Again, a house terrorized, similar colors, the orange and the yellow. And there it's a UFO riding off into the moonlight. So you never know. Maybe actually Spike Lee is paying some tribute to Steven Spielberg there. But there is another reason I think it's important for this list. It's a great example of something we touched on again during Black Klansman that's quite common in his films, which is it suggests an element of magical realism. The moon is so big and bright and full and low to the ground. It engulfs the clansmen. It almost turns them into like a snow globe. I don't know what a globe would be if it doesn't have any snow, but that's almost what it seems like. And again, there are lots of examples of that kind of magical realism being employed in his films where characters are experiencing fantasy moments or unrealistic moments. But it's not about the plot or the story or action that's unrealistic 
it's all in the form. The camera is actually bringing out that element of magic. And it's so beautiful. You just look at it admiringly, and then you remind yourself you're watching The Clan. It's a shot that D.W. Griffith might have used in Birth of a Nation to glorify The Clan if he had had the means. Ernest Dickerson, once again, the great cinematographer here. Yeah, I mean, it's very likely that Birth of a Nation is is being called back upon there. The other film that I think of is Night of the Hunter mm. and some of the silhouettes of Robert Mitchell totally. on horseback. Now, there's not a moon there, but but there is light coming yeah. from behind. And the connection I make there is, you know, Mitchum's a false preacher, right? And we didn't even touch on the religious elements of Black Klansmen, Mm -hmm. where all of that hate speech, especially at the initiation ceremony, is interwoven with religious speech Mm -hmm. and tradition. And there's maybe something there about, you know, they're false preachers up there Mm -hmm. against the moon. It's It's an amazing shot. Okay, so we are at number two, and I've talked already about how I call Lee's work direct address cinema. I think you could also call it wake-up cinema. His wake-up films are the ones that yell at us, rattle us, provoke us into thinking about race, gender, politics in new ways. I think probably most of them operate in this register. Not all of them, but most of them. So that does bring me to my number two pick, which is The Shot of Dap, played by Lawrence Fishburne literally screaming wake up in the middle of campus in school days. Wake up! Wake up! Dapp is the politically conscious student at Mission College. This is a fictional, historically black institution. Throughout the film, he's he's kind of been at odds, both with his fellow students for their apathy in general, but also with this clownish, cruel fraternity brother played by Giancarlo Esposito. This moment takes place near the end of the film, and it is an extended sequence. It starts with Dap running across the quad from far away as the camera swoops down to meet him. And then it intercuts to people waking up in bed as he starts screaming. But I do want to pick one shot from this sequence. And that is, going back to direct address, Dap looking at us as he screams. And here, Ernest Dickerson again, casting him in this umber morning glow. And then suddenly, both he and the camera rise in the air. It's it's not a dolly. It must be a crane involved, I would think. And what this does is gives his message this sudden metaphysical, there's that word again, mm-hmm. power to it. Yes, this sounds awfully didactic, and it is, but it's worth noting that School Days isn't just a mouthpiece for Dap. A lot of times the movie is skeptical of some of his choices as well and critical of them. So this goes back to that idea I was talking about where Lee can be preachy, but he's preaching a lot of things at once Mm -hmm. sometimes, throwing it all at you. I think that's why I don't get too caught up in the specific politics of his films and and trying to nail down exactly what is he saying and how do I feel about that. I think this is especially helpful with something like Chirac, maybe why I liked it more than most. And interestingly, Chirac has a callback to the wake up moment. Samuel Jackson has a wake up shot in Chirac. So the bottom line here, I think these films, they're calls to consciousness, right? They're calls to wake up first, work out the politics later. And this scene from School Days is a Mm. great example of that. Yeah, another one of my big blind spots. I had two that I wanted to reconcile here. She's got to have it in School Days and I was only able to make time for She's Got to Have It. So you made me feel even worse about that, Josh. Thank you, great choice. My number two comes from the movie that might actually be 
my third favorite Spike Lee film, Inside Man. And I'm calling it Detective Frazier's Fury. We're going back to Denzel Washington here. I felt like I did had to have one straight up double dolly shot on this list. And it definitely doesn't apply to all of the shots throughout his body of work. But watching Black Klansman and thinking about this list, you recognize that there is often a clash because the shots are cool. On the surface, they make the characters look cool. But we're actually seeing them it seems to me, often at their most vulnerable, the moment when their lives are most disrupted psychologically or emotionally. A lot of times there's just no real volatility. There's almost serenity to the shot that we're seeing as the characters are moving on that dolly. But the dolly is essentially taking away their agency. They're on a path to something they can't escape. Black Klansman does have this moment where it's finally employed. Good is seemingly prevailed in the movie. And all of a sudden, the characters are being ushered into a really unsettling revelation. Well, Inside Man features the most volatility, the biggest clash. Clive Owen plays Dalton Russell, the guy who's speaking to us in direct address at the beginning of the film. And at various points, he decides here to prove that he means business. And he, quote unquote, kills a hostage with Detective Frazier and the NYPD watching. Up until this point, Frazier has been operating under some illusion of control. He thinks he can navigate the scenario, that he probably is smarter than this guy on the inside, and that everything is going to work out okay, as stymied as he may be. He's mystified by the circumstances and the motives, but I do think he's sure he can handle Dalton. And then this action, this one action, completely shatters that illusion. And when it's shattered, when we cut to that double dolly shot, now there is this intensity and this volatility. Frazier is standing still, Denzel Washington, I should say, is standing still, but we know he's running because of the frenetic style. The movement is so rapid. The camera is actually shaking side to side. The background is chaos. Cops are running and mobilizing. Washington's face stays still. His lips are pursed, but you can just tell that anger is boiling. It's all heightened by everything that's going on around him with the shot. The music, it's the Terrence Blanchard score. It pounds as the shot begins, and then it rises, and it becomes more percussive and builds. During that dolly shot, it stops right as the shot ends, and he arrives at the door and confronts Dalton. The whole thing actually lasts only about seven seconds, Josh, but it's so intense, and it's so crucial because... Nothing ever is the same for those characters or the audience. After that, we realize that anything could happen. And I love that there's such power to it. Of course, power in Denzel's presence, his physical presence on frame. But we are watching a character at his most powerless in that moment. And the technique here highlights that. Not a shock to say you could have filled this top five list very easily with signature Spike Lee moments that involve Denzel Washington. Their collaborations have just been that good here, working with Matthew Libatique on Inside Man. I love the way this film looks. I really love everything about Inside Man, and that's one of my favorite moments. All right, I'm going to double down on your double dally pick with my number one. And you're right. This technique is employed for a variety of reasons throughout Lee's films. Uh, heard from a listener, Paul Costello, on my Larson on Film Facebook page, who nicely summed that up. He said, the character-mounted dolly shot is, to me, Spike's single most consistent and recognizable visual tick. It places the characters on a path from which they cannot divert. Denzel Washington and Malcolm X, and mm -hmm. Inside Man, there's yours. In a moment they cannot leave, he cites Philip Seymour Hoffman in 25th Hour, or in a world which revolves around them. Washington, again, in Mo Better Blues, your other pick. 
Paul names my choice there too. My number one Spike Lee shot, it is Denzel Washington's Malcolm X floating toward his assassination in Lee's 1992 biopic. Now, in that New York Times piece that we've cited, Mikado Murphy describes this exact shot this way. He glides through at a medium shot, a look on his face that seems to project knowledge of his fate, while Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come plays on the soundtrack. Okay, so why is this Lee's signature double dolly shot, to my mind? I like the tension at play here. I like that it is, yes, perhaps Lee's most showy technique, but it's used for the film's most subdued or mournful moment. Now, why is it my number one Spike Lee shot for this list? I think it literally visualizes the pull of history. The forces that have their say, even over a man as determined and iconoclastic as Malcolm X. So Lee has spent his whole career pushing back against those very forces. His subversion of Birth of a Nation and Black Klansmen is a perfect example of that. And in this shot, this this push-pull, I don't think has ever been better represented than this shot in Malcolm X. No, that's so well said. He is being pulled inexorably to that moment. He simply can't can't escape it. it. Whereas even as I said in the shot in Inside Man, he's lacking some agency. It's a complete contrast to the total lack of agency in that moment from Malcolm X. Such a great scene, such a great movie. And I'm going to end with, of course, another great movie. One you've already mentioned. My number one Spike Lee scene comes from Do the Right Thing. And if you're a regular listener and you're thinking, isn't Do the Right Thing in the Pantheon? And so it should be ineligible for these lists. Well, we do tend to make exceptions when we are doing these kind of career retrospectives. And it simply seemed wrong to talk about our favorite Spike Lee shots without thinking about Do the Right Thing. So I'm going with the opening credits. Of course, Fight the Power, a driving force behind that from Public Enemy. And I think... One of the reasons it's number one, Josh, is because it's the first Spike image that jumps into my head. And if there are other people out there who have a similar experience, perhaps it's because it's the first Spike Lee image many of us saw. And it is the setup to a masterpiece. Rosie Perez plays Tina. She's Mookie's girlfriend, the mother of his son, Hector. I haven't seen Do the Right Thing in a while, but a fairly minor role in the film overall. But she is the first character we meet and in her dancing holds the DNA of the entire movie. It's part of the credit sequence. I do think that it's hard to pick a single shot and some might pick a different one for me though, Josh, it is that very first static image. And I think how it's set up is key. We get the universal logo, 40 acres and a mule spike Lee joint, the title, and it's all with a more traditional spike Lee jazz score underneath it here. It's a lone saxophone playing kind of wistfully and then a fade to black. The music fades. Fight the Power begins with those frame jump cuts of a silhouetted Perez moving within the space. She's on that sidewalk in front of one of the stoops, though it seems pretty clearly on a soundstage. And that music cue from horn to hip-hop is your first indication, certainly not your last, that this isn't going to be another neighborhood movie. It's going to be intense. It's going to shake you out of your seat. And that first downbeat on one, the camera starts in a long shot showing Perez's whole body and then dollies forward, stopping right as she turns to face us. 
and the lighting changes and the credits begin. It's not a dolly shot. Actually, that push forward looks to me handheld. It's really shaky, which also makes it even more unsettling. It's not smooth and fluid by design. It kind of gives you the sense as an audience member that you're almost rushing to the stage just as the curtain has dropped. And you're going to have a front row seat to this moment. It's 13 seconds long, the shot, that opening shot. And there's a grace to Perez's movements, just as there's a grace to so many of the interactions and activity we see in the neighborhood over the course of the movie. But of course, there's this tension and anger underneath it all. And you see it in the violent way she jerks her body. She moves her fists as if she's throwing them like a boxer, like Radio Raheem does later in the film, like she does later in the credit sequence, actually wearing a boxer's clothing and wearing boxing gloves her face is clenched she's not smiling or ever looks happy while she's dancing the way most people do when they're dancing and yet here's that incongruity again that dissonance there's a joy in simply watching a body move that freely and expressively on camera and i love that it does start with movement but it doesn't use much of it at all. The whole sequence does it because Perez is doing all the work for us within the frame. And we get that lighting technique again. It actually goes back, or in this case, it would have been somewhat of the inspiration for, I suppose, that orangish red glow again from the windows in the apartments, just like the house in Malcolm X and that flashback, these vivid yellow windows suggesting heat, literal and figurative that is such a crucial part of the film and yes we just should have called this list maybe our top five spike lee and ernest dickerson shots because here he is again at number one that sequence is electric the last time i saw it it wasn't too long ago actually i was doing a, a a talk at a college we were breaking down scenes from do the right thing and i had to start right with that scene mm-hmm. you put it on in a room full of people and it's like just the energy yeah. that runs through from the screen through the whole crowd. There, there's really nothing like it. So definitely an honorable mention yeah. for me. One of those do the right thing selections I considered. Those are our top five Spike Lee shots. Speaking of honorable mentions, Josh, I feel like we could go on forever, but did you have a couple? Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. But the other do the right thing one that I did consider, besides the love-hate sequence, that felt more like a sequence to me, though, um, is just the shot of those three guys on the street under the umbrella on the sidewalk against that mm-hmm. red brick wall. I, I haven't, because it was just an honorable mention, I haven't put the brain power towards why I think of that all the time when do the right thing comes to mind, but I do. It's one that jumps out at me. We spent some time on it in our review, mentioned it here at the start of this segment, the portraits in the crowd shots from Black Klansman. I think that's going to go down yeah, as an all-timer for, for his sure. career. Crooklyn, you mentioned the distorted sequence. Uh, the cinematographer there is Arthur Jaffa. There's also a crazy upside down double yeah. dolly shot yeah. in with Crooklyn. Spike Lee. With Spike Lee is in it and it like glue sniffers yeah. there. So it's like capturing their high and turns them upside down. Real, really crazy. And then one more here I'll mention. It comes from his documentary, When the Levees Broke. And uh, I kept it off because it's news footage. It's found footage. And I felt, well, that really doesn't have a place. But the more you talked in our review about his use of that sort of material, I feel like I could have squeezed it on. Mm-hmm. It's another really distressing image, though. It's one shot of an elderly woman, Ethel Freeman, who died, and this is actually of her corpse, outside of the convention center during Hurricane Katrina. And she was with her son, and there was nowhere for him to bring her body or her when she was alive, obviously. And there's just this shot of her slumped in a wheelchair. Wow. And and, le- and it just, it, it kind of, you know, 
though it's found footage in a way, captures so much of the things Lee has wanted us to see and face throughout his career. So thought about that one Hmm. as well. I certainly thought about the faces in the crowd in Black Klansmen and a couple more from 25th Hour. I do expect some feedback. I'll try to headed off at the pass here from people who love that film and couldn't believe I chose that sequence, the overlooking ground zero, when we also could choose Monty's bathroom rant, which I don't think quite works because it's more of a sequence. But the way that sequence starts with Ed Norton staring into the mirror, the angle, the way it's framed, the fact that it is his reflection talking back to him, it's a compelling shot, a compelling scene. All three double dolly sequences in 25th Hour. Norton gets one. Paquin gets a great one. Philip Seymour Hoffman gets a great one. I really couldn't pick between them and just decided to go in another direction. Some other good options from Malcolm X. I love early in the film when we see the young kind of hoodlum days of Red and Shorty, played by Spike Lee, his friend there. And when they start swaying, when they got their their outfits on and the camera tracks along with them Mm -hmm. from in front of them as they're swaying down the street. And then later... There's a moment where he collapses, where Red collapses to the ground in a park and Spike Lee's looking over him and he's talking about how he used to be a big shot. And it's a direct reference to admitted by Spike Lee, direct reference to Billy Wilder's ace in the hole. Great shot where Kirk Douglas collapses to the ground. Crooklyn, not only the upside down glue sniffers, but another glue sniffing sequence that's a double dolly shot that then goes bonkers is Troy, the main character's nightmare of being chased by the glue sniffers and being forced to sniff the glue. And then she ends up not only floating kind of figuratively in this spikely way, but actually floating off the ground. She starts levitating in the camera with her. It's this great crane shot inside man. When the camera pulls back on the shot of a kid, a young African American kid sitting with Dalton within the safe and just the way that's framed. I love, there are so many more, I'll just throw out there, I'd love to hear from people what they have from He Got Game, because I love He Got Game. Yeah, it's Another Denzel. It's one of my top five Spike Lee films, and I did try to scan through it as best as I could and do some internet searching just to try to see what was generated. I remember lots of moments from the film, but none specifically driven by a visual choice, even though I know they're all over it because it's a Spike Lee movie. I couldn't land on one, but I just want to give He Got Game some love. We hope you will share some of your favorite Spike Lee shots. Our email address is feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at the website, filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. That's also where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We may not get to review the Happy Time Murders, but you know what? We're still asking you about it. Are you looking forward to the Happy Time Murders? Why? Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. It is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Out in limited release this weekend, Juliet Naked, based on the Nick Hornby novel about a woman's relationship with her longtime boyfriend's favorite musician. Rose Byrne stars as the woman. Chris Dowd as the boyfriend, one of our top five movie Chris's. I believe I had him at number four. Blasphemy. You had him at number four, but he is delightful. Ethan Hawke, also delightful as the musician. Hawke, Byrne, O'Dowd, and Nick Hornby. I'm all in on Juliet Naked. As Sam wrote here, how are we not reviewing this movie? In wide release, Alpha, adventure set in the Ice Age about the origin of man's best friend. Mile 22, an action thriller starring Mark Wahlberg and 
Crazy Rich Asians, which is the movie that we are intending to review on next week's show. We still have to come up with a top five. It might be romantic comedy related. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. You can learn more at trnty.edu. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can find a couple new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.